when you read that letter probably had a lot to do with the circumstances under which you were reading it. So if you found a stack of your grandparents' letters while cleaning out their house, you might have spent a nice afternoon um, with that warm feeling of uh, your feeling about your grandparents, and you probably would have learned a lot about them as well. But if you found an old love letter to your spouse that you did not write, you might not have had that same warm, fuzzy feeling after reading it, even if you learned a lot. And the difference in your feelings probably comes from how you felt about the person writing the letter. You probably had a positive feeling about your grandparents, but you might not have felt that towards your partner's old flame. Um, you might have an incomplete picture of that old boyfriend or girlfriend. And a lot of you have been with us as we embarked on our New Testament challenge, reading the, 90, uh, reading the New Testament in 90 days this summer. So if you're up with the reading plan, you might have read the book of Philippians this week. That's what I'm going to be talking about. But we're in the section um, that we call the epistles, after the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament are these letters and 13 of them are attributed to Paul. We say that the Apostle Paul wrote them. Um, after he set up these communities of faith and uh, was traveling around, he wanted them not to be swayed from the teachings that he left behind or uh, to be influenced by the culture around them that was getting into the church. There are even three of the letters that are specifically for churches on, on how they should be doing church and how things ought to be there. Now, a lot of modern scholars think that Paul probably only wrote eight of the 13 letters that bear his name, and I'm not going to go too far into that argument because there are people who have a lot more theological education that have already done that, but I bring it up to say that people who spend their whole lives doing study of these scriptures don't even agree on who wrote those letters. So regardless of the author, when we're reading this section of the New Testament, we are essentially reading someone else's mail. The early church might have circulated these letters among themselves, not knowing that they were going to get collected and organized, and, and much less that they would become our scriptures like the Hebrew Bible. But they could see that there was wisdom in these letters that could be applied to from another church to their context, um, and for them to get wisdom for their own lives. You know, if you're thinking about that letter from your grandfather to your grandmother, he, he didn't write it to you, but you might learn something about how to live well from reading that letter. I was visiting with my, my friend Tracy this week, and I was telling her what I was preaching on, and she pulled out a toolbox that was full of her grandmother's letters. And a lot of these letters were from her grandmother's first husband while they were still dating, and it was in the middle of World War II. So you can see a lot of those airmail letters um, and some telegrams, too. So uh, one of them was this nice one from, uh, sent from London on November 23, 1943. My love to you in particular remembrance of this day a year ago. Well, Tracy and I don't have any idea what happened on November 23rd, 1942, and there might not be anybody else alive who knows that either. Now, if you read that, uh, that love letter to your, to your spouse, 
you may also be having to make some, some inferences and guesses. Um, but you have a specific relationship to one of those people in the letter, and you're going to be reading it with a different focus. And that is also how you might be reading um, Paul's letter to the, the Corinthians. So we call the book 1 Corinthians, that it's a letter from Paul to the, the church at Corinth, but it's not actually his first letter because that letter got lost along the way. So it's his second letter, but we call it 1 Corinthians. So in any case, a lot of us are familiar with that book of the Bible um, because we hear readings from chapter 13 at weddings a lot, you know, about love is patient, love is kind, love does not bear grudges. We have this really nice thought about that chapter. But Paul wrote the letter to the church at Corinth because there was sexual immorality, divisiveness, and jealousy in the church. In uh, Tracy's same box of, of letters from her grandmother, we found a letter from some, uh, some family friends in Australia. And uh, they were really concerned about Tracy's then 16-year-old aunt. And they really they were begging for her mother to send her to Australia for the summer. And, you know, doing a little detective work, we figured out that it was after um, the girl's father had died and her mother had remarried. But there was a lot of talk about this phone call and, and what, was, what happened during that phone call. Well, we weren't there. And we're having to guess what went on during that phone call. And I think that that reminds us of, you know, that letter to the church at Corinth. We see the answer, but we didn't see what correspondence that the church at Corinth sent to them that elicited that response. So we might need to keep this in mind when we're reading the epistles, that there are things in this section that are God's wisdom for our lives that apply to all of us. And there might also be things that were directed at a particular group of people at a particular time for a particular reason. And so you, do you remember when I said that the way you read these letters or a letter might depend on the way you feel about the person who wrote the letter? So we're going to have true confessions time. Um, I don't always like Paul. I have some trouble when I get to this section of the Bible. And sometimes it's just because it's hard to read, that there's so much theology there. Um, sometimes I just want to read the Gospels, and I get to see Christ and how he lived and, and what exactly he said. And it feels so much more alive to me than some of these letters where Paul says something, and then he says it again, and then he goes back and he comes at it from a third angle, but I feel like he's telling me the same thing, and it's kind of dry. But when I go back and remember, this was a letter to somebody else. I might get a better understanding of it. Um, if you read the book of Acts, you might have read about Paul having his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And we kind of just jump over the next part. We, you know, that he went out and he started these missionary journeys. But there's a couple sentences in Galatians that tells us that he didn't immediately go out. He didn't go to Jerusalem and talk to other church fathers, but rather he went to Arabia for three years. And then he went and spent some time with Cephas, Peter, um, in Jerusalem after that. So we don't know what he did in those three years. 
Um, Adam Hamilton, in his book, The Call, has this theory that um, this was Paul's time. He, so you might even think of it like seminary. He devoted time to study, prayer, and making sense of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Paul had to rethink everything he had been taught about the Messiah, about the law, about righteousness, and much more. So Hamilton thinks that that's where Paul worked out of a lot of his theology during that time of closeness with God. So it helps me be a little bit more accepting of these things, um, knowing that Paul spent a lot of time working this out so that others would understand it as well. I also need to remember that when Paul was out on his missionary journeys and doing these correspondence, um, there, there was no gospels. He couldn't just hand them, you know, here you go, this will tell you all about Jesus. The churches were sharing stories about Christ and his life, but they weren't necessarily sharing the same stories or getting the same things out of them. The early church was definitely not in agreement about what those stories meant or how we were supposed to live our lives or much less do church together. So when I reread Paul's letters in that context, I understand the necessity of someone doing that hard work of explaining and re-explaining the theology. And I can be more patient when I remember that each community had their own needs, but he had to explain some of the basics to everybody. Um, I think Paul would have really liked email, where he could write it once and then just copy and send it off to all the churches, but that's another sermon. What would Paul tweet? Um, so another one of my, my problems with Paul is that there's just some things that don't square up with my understanding of, of God or, or church. I grew up in the United Methodist Church, in this congregation in particular, and there were female pastors here when I grew up, and even more recently, um, my spiritual mentor is a female ordained local or a female ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. So I've known that my church supports women in leadership. But then we get to these verses uh, from 1 Timothy. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Or from 1 Corinthians. Women should remain silent in the churches. I heard that. <laughs> Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. It is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So... These verses, these two passages, are like the major reason that some denominations and churches don't ordain women or allow them to be in positions of leadership. And so the way I used to deal with that, the cognitive dissonance between what I see here in the Bible and what I see in the gifts in ministry of women around me, is I just kind of used to disregard those verses. I just wanted to toss them out. But... To really become spiritually mature, I can't do that. I need to wrestle with it, and I need to look at it. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time over the last few weeks doing some research and trying to see how other people have wrestled with that same question. Um, there's a theologian from, from Wheaton College, which, if you know, is not a liberal school of theology, 
um, his name's Gilbert Belazikian. He wrote a whole book on women in leadership, and he looked at that particular passage from 1 Corinthians, and what he saw was a church in terminal crisis. This church was on the verge of imploding. And so Paul was sending emergency instructions. This is what you've got to do to keep the whole thing from falling apart because of the influences of culture. But somehow, those temporary instructions became the leadership roles 2,000 years later in some, some areas. So the whole reason I bring any of this up is that some of you might be struggling, just like I am, to understand what God wants us to get out of this very complex, wonderful, and frustrating collection of knowledge. So, as I mentioned, we got to read Philippians this week, and it is probably my favorite book of the Bible, and not just because it's four chapters long, although if you haven't read it, it's a great place to just jump in because it is short and sweet. But if you were doing the, the reading, you might have kind of just buzzed past it because there was nothing that like jumped out at you and it was not controversial. But this is one of those areas I think that we can all find wisdom. And if there's nothing else you remember about the letter to the Philippians, it's joy. Paul uses the word or joy or rejoice 15 or 16 times in this four short chapters. And um, you could almost miss what's going on there if you didn't know the situation in which he was writing the letters. Paul was in prison. Um, a lot of his epistles were written from prison. And he says uh, that brothers and sisters, uh, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And it, as a result, it has become clear that throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Um, how could you be so joyful when you're in prison? And, and possibly facing the end of your life. You might also remember, if you read the book of Acts, that Paul and Silas, I think it was in chapter 16, Paul and Silas went to Philippi, uh, and they made the mistake of casting out some demons, some people lost some income, and the people got real upset, and they threw Paul and Silas into prison. They actually flogged them severely and threw them into prison. Why would Paul have this warm feeling towards the church at Philippi that had treated, you know, that community had treated him that way? So after a lot of rereading of Philippians, I think God wants us to find joy in all our circumstances. If you heard Pastor Joe preach a few weeks ago, you might have heard him say that we can find joy in our circumstances, but not because of them. Sometimes it's not what's going on, like Paul being in prison didn't make him just thrilled, but he could find joy. So I started looking at some definitions of joy, and in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, they start their definition with the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. That second part, the prospect of possessing what one, one desires, um, another definition that I found said, the expectation or anticipation of something wonderful. And I think that's where Paul is finding his joy. Not being in prison, whether it was house arrest or in another prison, but it was his assurance through his faith in Christ that he had salvation. 
And that kind of joy really speaks to me because the last two, two and a half years of my life have not been my favorite. Um, my marriage crumbled and I am getting divorced. And there have been times when I was, was so physically tired that I didn't know how I was going to get through the day. Uh, I can remember a couple times when I pulled my car off the road um, because I needed to cry and I needed to not crash my car. Um, I felt angry and frustrated. I felt like I didn't choose these circumstances. My relationships changed, my routine changed, and even the way I understood myself changed. But what did not change was God's closeness and availability to me. So we get these words from the fourth chapter of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. It is our human nature to be anxious, and Paul knows it, but he reminds us to rejoice first, to be thankful even in the midst of these difficult situations. Then we will have God's peace. We're in, when we're in these circumstances beyond our control, we can still meditate on all that's lovely and excellent and praiseworthy, and then the God of peace will be with us. Um, a few verses after the, that, that passage um, is one of my favorites. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've liked that verse for a long time, but it's really become um, my life verse, the one that just pops up on, in me whenever I need it. Um, that kind of started when I was on the way to the hospital to deliver my second child, and my mom just kind of said in passing, remember, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And I found myself in the middle of the delivery just thinking that. And every time I thought it, I smiled. And the midwife kind of looked at me and she says, I've never seen anybody smile during the delivery so much. <laughs> but I knew that God was there with me. Um, during one of our uh, women's events here at church a few years ago, uh, I ended up painting this canvas, and it hangs in my office. And this was just one of the verses that they, she had ready for people to, to paint, and that's the one that I chose. And it has been so helpful. And I know God was in, was in that, that that's the one that I chose, because I turned from my desk, and it's all on my wall right there in front of me. It reminds me that Christ gives me the strength to face anything. And what a difference it can make in our lives if we don't need to live in fear that we remember that our citizenship is in heaven. But Paul told the church at Philippi, and we would do well to be 
reminded that um, we can't just rest in that knowledge that we've been made righteous through Christ, but that we need to continue to work out our salvation. Um, the con contemporary English version of this verse says, so work with fear and trembling to discover what it really means to be saved. God is working in you to make you willing and able to obey him. So we've got more work to do. In the first chapter of Philippians, um, Paul says that he desires to die, to depart to be with Christ, but that he knows he has more fruitful labor to do here on earth. And as I worked on this message over the last few weeks, I started to think about the letter to the Philippians as a love letter to us. And it's not a love letter telling us about the joy of love, but how to live and love in order to find joy, that there is work to be done to unlock that joy. Yes, we, we need to set aside selfish ambition, as Paul reminds us, that we need to look after the, other, the interests of others before our own. We need to find joy in unity with our brothers and sisters here in church and here in, in the world, and to try to be of one spirit and of one mind. And we definitely cannot stay mired in the problems of our past or focus on the ways we've fallen short. I don't know how it is with your souls today. If you came here in a dry place, thirsting for comfort and refreshment, or if you came already rejoicing. But how you hear this letter probably has a lot to do with the condition of your spirit when you come. But if you're in that desert place, let's go back again to that, those words about the expectation or anticipation of something wonderful. Uh, this is me finding some joy on Wednesday morning. You'll put the picture up. I love roller coasters. My children do not. But my best friend's daughter likes roller coasters, so I got to take her on a couple roller coaster rides at Busch Gardens. And this is the part where we're just getting started. I don't even know if we've left the station there. So the car is going to start tick, 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 up the hill. So this is before the good part, where you start dropping and going upside down, and some of you are going, that is not the good part. But for me, it is. <laughs> but that look you see on my face, that's me knowing what's coming. And then sometimes I find my joy through these two little people. Uh, my daughters, Gwen and Maisie, they started school on Friday, and Maisie finally started kindergarten. Hallelujah, she was ready. Um, but sometimes I do not easily find my joy in them because I'm tired or I'm worried or I'm just out of patience for the day. And at those times, I have to do my work in trusting God to remember that Christ strengthens me for whatever I need to take care of them. And I need to focus on the lovely and the pure and the excellent, not on whatever is currently making me crazy about them. Then I can make my requests of God and have my peace. So when you leave here today and you start those 167 hours that you won't be in worship, remember the words of this letter. You may, may be ready to take on that challenge to put your own ambition behind and to lift other people up, 
or it may be all that you can do to call out to Jesus for strength. And either way, that is okay because you are pressing forward, as Paul tells us to do. The God of the universe wants you to do more than survive, but to find true joy. So as the praise team comes up, I want to remind you that God is calling out to you in these words from almost 2,000 years ago. It may be somebody else's letter, but God made it possible for you to hear today. Let's be in prayer for a moment. God, we thank you that we do have your words in those times when we don't have anything else and that you've taught us to call out to Jesus for strength. So whatever, whatever these people that are here in worship or worshiping with us online, whatever is in their hearts, help them focus, Lord, on all that is good and excellent so that we can move forward from survival into thriving and bringing your kingdom on this earth. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who made it all possible, Lord. Amen.